Have you ever wanted to see for yourself what the Bible has to say? Well, you've come to the right place. Join me, Pastor Tom Marsis, and Vicar Aidan Moon as we explore the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, provide you with some landmarks and guideposts along the way. Welcome to Trek Through the Scriptures. Welcome to Trek Through the Scriptures, episode 21, Hope Amidst Suffering. My name is Pastor Tom Marsis, Senior Pastor at Zion Lutheran Church. I'm Vicar Aidan Moon. And we're glad that you're with us this week as we continue our trek through the Scriptures, Genesis all the way through Revelation. Uh, we're moving rather quickly now. We've moved into the Minor Prophets. And so this week, uh, we're going to be covering Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, first part of Job, Job 1 to 11. Yeah, so it, it is, like you said, we're covering a lot of territory, and it can kind of get overwhelming when you to keep all of these different names straight, all of these different prophets. Their books aren't that long, but they tend to be pretty dense. There's a lot of poetry. And the book of Job, too, is kind of the same way, even though Job is not a prophet, but Job has some of that same poetic language. can be kind of heady. We won't spend too much time on Job this week. We'll focus in on the minor prophets and then dig into the rest of Job next week. But we will get started on the Job reading this week. So we'll, we'll at least make note of that at the end of the episode. As we're getting into it, as we've talked about throughout, the Bible Project has some great introduction videos as you follow that on their app or on their website. And we'd really encourage you to take some time, uh, go to the Bible Project, watch the videos. It'll help you get a deeper picture into each one of these uh, that we're going to highlight here as we work through. First of them is Micah, and Luther describes this as a rambling book. Uh, there's not this super clear structure. A lot of the writing we'll find in Scripture obviously has a definite introduction, conclusion, and the main parts in between. But uh, as Micah's writing, it's kind of rambling, like a long rambling sentence, yep. basically. It's kind of all over the place. So it it's kind of hard to follow, and you feel like you're having a hard time following his logic. You're not alone. You're in good company with even someone like Luther, who described it that way. Um, that's not to say that there's not some really good stuff in Micah. Something to note about the context of that. So we read through Second Kings, and we got to see the picture of the kingdoms and all of the different craziness going on. This was happening during the reign of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. These are different kings of the two kingdoms of the northern and southern kingdom. So it's happening before Israel and Samaria, that is the northern kingdom. Again, we've, we've been trying to make sure we can keep these straight, but it's before Samaria is destroyed, and it actually predicts the destruction of Samaria and Israel by the Assyrians, and then looks forward even further to the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. So unique to this prophet, a lot of the prophets focus in on either Judah or Israel. Micah really aims at both. He aims at both the northern and southern kingdom. And we see this humility before God concept and, and the importance of as we come before God in our humility. And one of the quotes we have are, do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. Uh, really what it is, think about it this way, it is condemning a religious practice for simply doing religious practice. You might call it empty religious practice, but that's like going through the motions simply to go through the motions and as if it's the motions alone that's going to be saving us. Yeah, there's this this focus on this is really the most important thing. I, I actually care about the hearts of my people. I actually care, care about 
how you're living out this faith that you have in me. This is what God is saying through Micah. And you think that just going through some sort of religious practice will make it okay. And Jesus quotes the Old Testament as well when he says, you would know what it means that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Obviously, God told his people to do sacrifices, but more importantly than that, their lives are to embody that sacrifice. They're actually supposed to sacrifice not just to check the box, but have a whole life that's devoted to God in that kind of humility to do justice and love mercy. And this especially ends up looking really bad for Israel's leaders, um, because they're really making a big show out of doing all the right religious piety and everything, but they do not care about the poor and the weak. And Micah gets pretty tough against these leaders in that way. We hear a little bit about the remnant, you know, that which is left or that which is going to return, because throughout all of it, as God is speaking to the fact that he's going to be taking his people off into exile and there's punishment, there's also deliverance that's a part of that. And as we've gone through the uh, book of Kings, we've seen again and again how many bad kings, false kings in a sense that they lead the people towards false worship. But yet here it talks about a deliverance and a good king to reign over them. So really it's an imagery of peace, no more war, Boy, wouldn't that be nice today in the uh-huh. <laughs> context that we're living in, uh, no more war. And yet uh, it also, remnant, that's a word that we really want to hold on to. We will see that again and again as we go through these prophets, but even into the New Testament. Yeah, this this idea that God is, yes, going to send his people into exile, but they're not going to be completely destroyed. There is going to be some that make it out the other side. is very significant, very important to a lot of the prophets. So you'll see this repeated throughout, and I think we've seen it already in some of the other prophets. And as to that, that king who will rule over that remnant, this is some of the really striking and obvious references and prophecies that are aimed at the New Testament and that the New Testament points out connections to. Um, for example, in chapter 5 of Micah, we often read this around Christmas time um, in Advent because there's a promise of a king that will be born in Bethlehem, uh, a, a shepherd king even is how it's described. And there's this kind of contrast of mercy and might, of authority and solidarity with, solidarity with the weak. So this is going to be a king who doesn't oppress the people, doesn't hurt them and destroy them, not going around causing wars. This is a king who's powerful, who's strong, but is also um, willing to make sacrifices for his people, for the, for the sheep. And this is all connected together in this being a promise that aims at God's character. And that's how the book closes. So that's really one of the big themes. Even though there's this condemnation, there's this law directed at the people of Israel, God's character is that he'll pardon iniquity. He's passing over transgression. He's a God of mercy and steadfast love. That's the language we see at the end of the book. And so it's really a statement of God's promise that there's going to be a king who's going to be better than any of the kings they've had before, even their greatest kings, um, that he is going to be better both in power and also in mercy and care for his people. So God's going to keep his promises. That's how Micah closes. Now we move on to the next minor prophet, and that would be Nahum. Uh, This really, he speaks to the destruction of Nineveh for the comfort of Yahweh's people. And uh, whereas the last book, Micah, was really speaking to both nations, Israel and Judah, Nahum is specifically a prophet to Judah. Now, 
while we know that to be true, the dating is uh, is up for some debate. Uh, he doesn't mention any specific king, so you can't tie him to a certain reign to have an idea of the years that he was there. But many believe it was uh, during the reign of Josiah. Now that is our understanding looking at context, not because the book itself mentions it, so you need to be aware of that. And his uh, judgment, however, focuses on Nineveh rather than on Judah, and that is also very significant. That's And that's one of the reasons people think it happened during Josiah's reign, because it doesn't specifically condemn the sin of Judah. So some will say it would make sense then for it to be under the good king Josiah, um, since he's not calling out the king of the time. But as you said, we don't really know. It's everyone is making their best guess. It's happening before Nineveh is destroyed. That's what we can gather. So it's still during the time where Assyria is at the peak of its power. And we see the hard side of of Yahweh in some ways in this book. It's it's a it's a war cry of sorts and the language is pretty tough because you have Assyria which is this world superpower. It's described as a lion. There's even a lot of imagery. You can look this up in that there was Assyrian reliefs, these carved stone reliefs, and they would often show lions. That was a big favorite image of theirs. And uh, you would see the Assyrian kings really like to show off their power by showing them hunting lions or fighting them with their bare hands or something like this. And the lion as an image of Assyria is taken up by this book both in the power of Nineveh and of Assyria, but of also its viciousness. Uh, we've talked about this before a little bit as we went through Kings. Assyria, when they came in and took somewhere over, it was brutal. They wiped out the nation. They would, they would force deport everybody, replace the people. It was very vicious. It was like a lion tearing up its prey. And so even though the language seems pretty harsh, you can see how this would be comforting to a little nation like Judah that God is going to fight for them against this great and powerful enemy. And so we've been talking about this. Nineveh wasn't just one of the big cities of uh, Assyria. It was actually the actual capital. So uh, we see that as the seat of government, the seat of power. And, and so Nahum speaking towards that is, is rather interesting. He's going actually after the center of power. And his name itself, Nahum, means comfort. And so bringing comfort even amidst the coming destruction and avenging cry, so to speak, you know, the, the, there's, there's comfort that is coming for his people. And so we ask the question, it's, it's probably worth asking how to apply a book like Nahum, because we want to be careful not to just say, well, you know, I'm going to apply this in a broad brush way to all of my personal enemies. Um, we do read this in the context of Jesus saying to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. One of the reasons we're able to love our enemies and pray for them is because we know that ultimately uh, justice and judgment are in God's hands, not ours. And the book of Nahum really puts that in perspective. It shows us that we can we can love them knowing that justice is in God's hands. He It's not in our hands to take vengeance on these powers. And also, and this is often how it has been taken post-Christ, is that this language can be directed against the, the enemies that we face that are bigger than Assyria, the enemies that all humans face, which is sin and death and the devil. Those powers were faced head on in all of their destructive power by Christ as well. And so we see his victory over that as a great comfort as well. And 
the book of Revelation, as we get when we get there at the end of the year, we'll see how Christ is shown as a mighty and powerful warrior fighting his people's battles, but ultimately against those greater enemies and uh, the bigger enemies. But there is an aspect of knowing that every great, powerful, oppressive empire that doesn't that doesn't do things right, that hurts people, will fall and eventually will be replaced by Christ's kingdom. Well, now we move on to the next book for this week, and that would be Habakkuk or Habakkuk, depending upon how you want to pronounce it. I, I know that we've talked about pronunciations earlier. This is one of those books that depend upon who you listen to, how you pronounce it. But Habakkuk probably is a little bit more accurate, but Habakkuk uh, is also the way some people would pronounce it. And we have no other information on him except his name, like who his father was or, or that kind of thing. But we, we do have his name. And the book is structured in this case as a dialogue speaking back and forth with Yahweh. So it begins with a complaint that he has not listened to his people and that they're crying out for mercy. So now we have this conversation going on between Habakkuk and Yahweh back and forth in this dialogue back and forth. Yeah, it's interesting because most of the prophets, you have them kind of coming from on high. So God gives them a message and they deliver it to the people. Habakkuk is interesting because he stands as the people's representative to Yahweh. So he's going with this, these questions and these, these disputes, um, these even complaints, we might say, to God and kind of representing the whole people of Judah and Israel as he looks at the destructive power of these nations. Again, Assyria. Assyria is very much on the front of the news of the day, we might say. It is the constant pressing fear of all these nations in this, in this area. And that causes these questions of where is God in all of this? And that's what Habakkuk's role is, is that he looks to God and asks this question for the people of Israel. And it does bring up this question of justice. And there's a claim made that maybe God doesn't care or maybe God isn't just after all. But uh, this dialogue gives a chance for him to sort of wrestle with what's God's plan rather than our plan. And really, when we talk about it in that manner, what he's really doing is seeing God's judgment is impossible to understand. We know it's there, and we know that God promises his justice and judgment, but the question is, he does it in manners oftentimes that humanly speaking, we can't comprehend. And when we get to the New Testament, well, that's one of the things we'll talk about, we accept it by faith. It's one of the mysteries of the faith. And God's judgment, while we know it's true, while it's real, we don't always understand how that is or where it fits in this whole idea of suffering and and so forth. And so some of it, we just need to know he, he is going to be just, he's going to bring judgment, but he's going to do it in his way, in his manner. Yeah, we could almost see this as a little bit of a preview of the book of Job, which will also start this week, um, dealing with some of the same questions. Habakkuk is dealing with it on behalf of a whole people. Job will be dealing with it as an individual. And both of them eventually come to this place of fear because you're recognizing that God is God and you are not. They're re recognizing that God is very big. <laughs> he created everything. Um, and that is intimidating on some level, but also a place of faith, a place of trust that, like you said, God's justice and judgment is there, even if we can't see it. And so uh, Habakkuk is able to rejoice in God 
as the one who does bring salvation, even when that's an invisible truth to him in the time, he's only trusting God's promise, not what he can see right in front of him. And But that's where he ends up with after this kind of dialogue back and forth. So now we move on to our next book, Zephaniah. Uh, again, another prophet for Judah, the southern kingdom. He's under King Josiah. If you remember, as we were going through the book of Kings, he's one of the good kings. And, and so he's bringing, restoring the law uh, to the people. But even though he's a good king, even though uh, part of his work and rule was bringing back God's law, it's not enough to hold off the ultimate judgment that God's going to have against his people. So it's significant that, yes, they do have a good king here. Yes, that's during the time of Zephaniah, but God's judgment is still coming. And so the structure of the book follows that kind of idea. It really starts with a lot of judgment, a lot of law. We might even say it follows a law gospel structure. You have a lot of judgment up front, and then you've got promises. A few things to think about. We'll see the day of the Lord as a concept throughout the prophets. The day of the Lord is usually a scary thing for the people, and that it's the day of God's judgment and God's wrath. It's a dark day, uh, typically, in, in their mental picture of it. But then beyond that, there's this promise of deliverance, deliverance from this destruction, deliverance from exile, and ultimately deliverance even from sin. And so things are, are set right, so to speak. These things that were curses, these judgments are then turned into a blessing, and there's some more remnant language. We talked about that. And so it really makes this move, and we can see it move from judgment on the people, but then also the promises that will come after that. And one of the main things that is really being condemned is continued pagan and what we might say kind of magical practices, the kind of ways of trying to manipulate spiritual forces to do what you want. A lot of this is what's being condemned in this book. And it really seems like from what we were able to tell from reading through Zephaniah that there would have actually been some pretty specific things he was targeting. Maybe specific people, maybe specific people who are practicing th these things in Jerusalem or in the nation of Judah, but especially these specific things that were going on in Judah at the time. And so some of it's hard to interpret because of that, because it is aimed at a very specific time and place, but the themes of, of judgment and promise are, are timeless. Well, we've gone through these four shorter minor prophets, again, reminding you, major prophets are larger books, minor prophets are smaller books, not necessarily in ranking their importance. But now as we've gone through four minor prophets this week, we get started on the book of Job. And Job's a rather longer book. It's a different style of writing. So we want to make a distinction between the prophetic writings that we saw here in the minor prophets. But now we're moving into Job. We're going to be reading the first 11 chapters of Job uh, this week. And we want to get into more detail next week. But it's important to understand as you get started in the book of Job, it's a different kind of writing. It's wisdom literature. And we're going to hear more about wisdom literature going forward. And it really tells a story about the character of this gentleman named Job in order to somehow put our idea or understanding of suffering over against our knowledge and understanding of who God is and how or what our human response should be as we deal with this situation that Job's going to find himself in. And like you said, this is wisdom literature, so it's intended to make us reflect on sort of these big ideas. Um, and 
it's the emphasis of Job is not necessarily on the specific historical location of where it is, even though we think for most most scholars would say that it's pretty early, actually, maybe even as early as maybe Jacob and Isaac and, and some of those guys back in Genesis. But really the main point of it is to get us to reflect on these concepts, these ideas about God and about suffering. And, and so that's what we'll get into next week as we dig in further to the book of Job. So as you read the first 11 chapters, just reflect on it and think about what things are puzzling or confusing, and then we'll come back to it next week on the podcast. We want to remind you now as we're uh, bringing to a close uh, our look at these uh, four minor prophets and starting out Job, do not uh, miss out on the opportunity to go back to the Bible Project and look at some of the videos introducing it because you'll find even more information on all of these. And as we're going through so many books at such a quick clip, even though uh, they're smaller books, uh, to try and keep it all straight, which kingdom, are they talking to both kingdoms, the type of writing, uh, the context as we've been talking about. So those uh, short videos will be able to help you through some of that as you do your reading. Well, we hope this has been a blessing to you today and, and helped you as you get started on your readings this week as we're zipping through Four Minor Prophets, uh, getting started with the book of Job. And we ask that the Lord would bless your reading as we continue to trek through the scriptures all the way to Revelation. Lord's blessings this week. Every week as we do our readings, we have, there's inevitably questions that come up and sometimes we're able to deal with these questions in our Sunday morning Bible study. We also have different opportunities online for people to either email in their questions, for people to text us their questions. And we also have a, a form that people can put their questions in to uh, that we will have access to. And this week we had a question sent in to us regarding actually some of the earlier readings back in Isaiah related to the prophecies and which ones are immediately, which ones are coming further off or the end of time, how to distinguish these things. And uh, there's not a super clear answer to these, but it, it doesn't just apply to the book of Isaiah. It really applies to all of the prophets. Something that's worth noting, and we've mentioned this before, but it's worth noting again, is that because of the nature of this prophetic style of literature, sometimes there's a both and to this question. Um, we can we can really see very clearly as we read through the prophets that there's going to be some language that's figurative and that's picturesque. So it's giving us these images. Um, for example, in the book of Amos, um, there's a, a promise of the future blessings for God's people in in chapter 9, verse 13, the mountains will drip sweet wine. So we're not talking about literal wine flowing over these hills, but we can kind of suspend a little bit of our literalism and see the kind of picture this is painting for us of what the future for God's people looks like. And so books like Daniel and Revelation, but also all over the prophets, we see this kind of symbolic language. It's We'll see things like numbers. We'll deep see different things. This isn't trying to lay things out like a newspaper report on something. This is a uh, poetry. It's imagery. And so our goal as we're reading is to look at what's the intended point of what this is trying to say. What's the sense of this? God sometimes conveys this through a lot of symbolic language. And part of that is um, there's an idea, and this I'm I'm referencing an article from the the Commission on Theology and Church Relations. So you can find this article online. Actually, this is on the End Times. 
prophetic texts sometimes use something called shortened perspective. So there's this idea that events in the near future and the distant future are kind of smashed into two to, into one picture. So uh, the the uh, analogy is like mountain peaks seen from a distance. They might look like they're right next to each other, but actually one is far beyond the other um, as you're looking at them. So there's all kinds of ways that this happens within the prophets that, uh, for example, Joel, he goes, he has immediately right in front of him a locust plague, but then he also takes that forward and he talks about Pentecost, like immediately following in the same chapter. Um, and then even for, carries that even further on. So this is in chapter one and two of Joel. He carries that immediately on to Christ's second coming as well. So you see these sort of smushed together into really one prophecy, but it's getting at multiple layers, so to speak. And uh, Jesus does the same thing. So Jesus, when he's he's prophesying the future, he talks about the Romans destroying Jerusalem, but then he also brings that right into talking about persecution on the church before his second coming. You can look in Matthew chapter 24, Mark chapter 13, or Luke 21 is all, all kind of looking at this. So that's a second thing to think about is this shortened perspective. Sometimes it's the same, the same prophecy, but it's got multiple different events within it. And then it's also important to look at the immediate context and not always do we even have this. An example of this would be the book of Obadiah. So Obadiah predicts those on Mount Zion will escape God's wrath in Obadiah 17. The New Testament uses this to talk about the people of God, all believers, the church being saved. But Obadiah, he doesn't say the Christian church will be saved because he lives BC. It's not part of his vocabulary. And so um, we shouldn't expect the Old Testament to use Christian vocabulary because it doesn't exist yet. The, the New Testament sort of gives us more information to allow us to interpret these things. And there's, there's one kind of last idea that helps us to think about this. We've talked about the idea of a type and anti-type idea. A type would be, it can be anything really. I mean, it could be a person, it could be an institution, or it could be an event itself. But then it, it's something that prefigures something greater. So if there's immediate fulfillment of a prophecy that doesn't negate an ultimate fulfillment of it, and the Bible does this all the time, so the New Testament will do this for us. It's here's the greater fulfillment of that initial prophecy than its initial fulfillment. So a greater Exodus, a greater Davidic king, a, a new Jerusalem. There's all these different ways that we've seen this. And the prophets are a big example of where this shows up. So for example, Jerusalem shows up all the time in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets. Mount Zion is another word to reference that hill that Jerusalem is on. So keep those together in your mind. It's not referring to the modern city of Jerusalem in the Middle East. That would be to ignore the symbolism that is really trying to be conveyed there because it's foreshadowing the city that God is creating for us that is ultimate and to come. And so the new Jerusalem is not the Jerusalem of the 21st century. It is the, the heavenly Jerusalem that God is preparing for us, um, that end times connection. So I know that this doesn't entirely answer the question because the question still gets at how do we actually tell them apart? I think when push comes to shove, as you're reading, try to remember and look at a timeline and remember what's immediately going on first. And that can give you a clue to what the, the prophet is trying to convey. But don't be afraid of carrying it all the way out to being about Christ, um, because all these prophecies do ultimately lead and point there. And so, um, the, and then this is another, another thing you can do. And 
since we all have access to the internet now, this becomes a lot easier than it would have been before. You can find where the New Testament uses these same verses and quotes this book. So if you're reading um, the book of Isaiah, you can look up where is Isaiah referenced in the New Testament. You'll come up with a lot of references. Isaiah is referenced a lot or any of the minor prophets in the same way. Does the New Testament quote it and how is it, how is it interpreting it? And this can give you another clue of how to carry that out further. So the fulfillment is always greater than the prediction. And it's not always super literalistic. When it predicts that David's going to rule over restored Israel, um, when Isaiah predicts Messiah's name shall be Emmanuel, you might have expected a resurrected David who gets a new name, Emmanuel. Well, no, the New Testament shows us Jesus, who is a descendant of David, is in fact God with us, Emmanuel. So we see that there is a, a big picture of this. Um, it's not just literalistic, but there is a lot of symbolism and imagery. And just on one read through the Old Testament, you're not going to notice it all. You're not going to see it all. So have, a, have realistic standards for yourself. But there is this sort of unity and organic unity between the Old and New Testament that can't be ignored. And we got to be careful as we're reading through to not jump to these conclusions of trying to lay out a timeline or see it as a report like a newspaper article. Um, this is not how these pre-modern people thought. It's not how they wrote. And so um, let's, not be, let's be careful not to insert our 21st century presuppositions onto them as well. So big points. Interpret it in the light of the New Testament, interpret it in the light of Christ, and also um, pay attention to the original context that it was written in. And this can help us at least to get a little bit of an idea. And it's always worthwhile to listen to some scholars. And uh, so if you want to go look up more things on this, if you want to read through some various resources, get in touch with us, we can point you in a good direction. We don't need to uh, make it all about our 21st century context or bring it into a literalistic application, um, but we can see it as all part of a coherent story that is really all centered in Christ. And that's what this is all about. That's what we do every week. We center these stories in Christ. We see how it all points to him and then ultimately points forward to when we will finally and completely witness his victory over all the evil forces that we fight in this life. And that's what it's all about. That's what the prophets all point to. And we can take them with a lot of joy, um, even as they're sometimes difficult for us to interpret. So we pray that God would bless your reading this week as you continue to trek through the scriptures, um, continue to ask good questions, continue to let these books challenge you and stretch you um, as you continue to learn and grow in your own walk. And uh, we thank you for joining us again this week. Thank you for joining us on our Trek Through the Scriptures this week. This podcast is a ministry of Zion Lutheran Church in Bismarck, North Dakota. To contact us, learn more, or for more resources on our journey this year, please visit zionbismarck.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or YouTube. This podcast was made possible by a grant from Lutheran Church Extension Fund. We thank them for their support. Join me now in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, giver and perfecter of our faith, we thank and praise you for the gift of your holy scriptures, for our instruction and edification. Send your blessing upon your word, and by the Holy Spirit, increase our saving knowledge of you, that day by day we may be strengthened in divine truth and remain steadfast in your grace. Give us strength to fight the good fight, and by faith to overcome all the temptations of Satan, the flesh, and the world, so that we may finally receive the salvation of our souls. 
for you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week as we continue our exploration of God's story as it points us ever towards the good news of Jesus Christ. Have a great week.